to ask you to take your Bibles tonight and please turn with me to the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 125 tonight I'd like us to take a few moments to look at this evening. I'd like to read the scripture and then we'll begin with a word of prayer as we take time tonight to study the 125th Psalm. Let's hear God's word tonight. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity, but peace shall be upon Israel. The early church father Augustine said of the Psalms that he read them every single day because it helped orient his moral and spiritual life back to God. The book of Psalms is that one book in all the books of the Bible that we turn to throughout all the events and the experiences of our life because the Psalms, they're kind of like a spiritual IV that goes straight into the bloodline of your soul. It's, it's an encountering with God. It's like standing before the burning bush like Moses and God speaks to us. God speaks to us through the reading of the Psalms. And they were written because they were written to teach us to lift our hearts into true biblical worship of God. And that's what we're going to look at tonight in Psalm 125. And I hope that the Lord will use it in your life as you are walking with God uh, throughout the journey of your life. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being in your house. Strengthen your people tonight. Build their faith and their confidence in your word and your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For 29 years, my family and I were involved in the ministry of evangelism. As I mentioned earlier, we came to your church. And our living um, arrangements were we lived in a what's known as a fifth wheel trailer that hooks up to the back of a pickup truck and we parked in your church parking lots. We became connoisseurs of fine church parking lots and yours, were, yours definitely was one of them. And uh, the trailers that we lived in were, were really made for you to be able to live a pretty comfortable life and so all the amenities you would have in your house we had in our trailer. The only difference is they were smaller in size. So particularly like your washing machines and your, your, your uh, dishwashers, we had a dishwasher and your refrigerator. We had it all, it's just much smaller. And at the peak of our family, when we had all four children living together, traveling on the road, those, those little washing machine, machines were running 24-7. My wife was always taking them out and loading them back up. And when, we would, when the, when the uh, washing machine would get in the spin cycle, because it's in a trailer, it would shake the trailer. It kind of feels like you're in an earthquake. But we got used to it. We, my wife would put a load in before we go to bed at night, and we'd be laying in the bed at night like this trying to go to sleep. But we just got used to it. But it was always somewhat humorous when we would, on a typical week, invite the pastor and his family to come over to our house for fellowship after the evening service, and they're always curious about the trailer. 
And we would get in and we would sit down and get our food. And my wife had already put in a load before the pastor and his family came over. And it would get into the spin cycle and it would begin to shake the trailer. And it was always really funny to watch the pastor and his wife thinking they were in an earthquake and they were holding on to the couch like somehow they're going to, you know, die in the process. And it was, it was at least for a few moments, it was a, it was a shake up for them. Psalm 125 was written for people who were going through times or through cycles in their life where things are being shaken up. That's what it was written for. And it was for us on our journey of life of where we turn when we go through those kinds of times. So as we look at Psalm 125 tonight, I want you to note some important, just a couple of key important things about it before we get into it. And the most important thing is right under the title Psalm 125, your Bible probably has something very similar to mine. What does your Bible say right underneath it? It says what? Okay, that's, that's the uh, title of it, but, what, but, but there's something else underneath it. What does it say? A psalm or a song of degrees or ascents, okay? So psalm of ascents, psalm of, psalm of degrees, song of degrees, all means the same thing. Now, you see that in Psalm 125. Look at Psalm 126. Do you see the same thing underneath it? How about Psalm 124? Fact is, if you look from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, you'll see that all of those songs... Because that's what the psalm, the psalms were the Jewish songbooks. And each one of these psalms, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, are psalms of ascents or songs of degrees. So, what's that all about? Well, just a little background. Three times a year, the Jewish people were prescribed by the Jewish law to go to the city of Jerusalem for their annual religious festivals or their religious feasts. You could almost look at them as a, a week-long revival meeting. And those times were called Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Passover, or what they call Pesach, took place in late March, maybe early April. Pentecost took place in late May, right before the summertime. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also known as Sukkot, took place in late September and early October. Three times a year, they were required by law to go up to the city of Jerusalem. And these, were, these religious festivals were, were times of spiritual refreshing, spiritual renewing. They were to be times of great spiritual rejoicing. And the Jewish people had to make their way up to the city of Jerusalem for these festivals. For example, Jesus lived up in Nazareth, and for him to get to Jerusalem, it was an 85-mile walk. And what made the walk extremely difficult was the last 15 miles, because the city of Jerusalem sits on top of a mountain 2,500 feet above sea level, and the city of Jericho sits 700 feet below sea level, and it's a basically 15-mile walk straight uphill through the middle of the most barren desert you could ever imagine. And so the journey on the road that leads up to Jerusalem was no light journey. I mean, 
I mean, we're talking about how hot it is in air conditioning, in an air-conditioned car going back and forth from an air-conditioned home to an air-conditioned church. Come on, we're a, bunch of, we're a bunch of wimps here. They were walking in the incredible heat and journey to make their way up to the city of Jerusalem. And how would they get there? They would travel in caravans. They would, you know, scores of people traveling together. And what would they do on those journeys? Well, let me ask you a question. If you got a 10-hour trip with your kids, what do you do in your car? Do you make them sit there with their hands folded and say nothing for 10 hours? Or do you do what my wife used to do and put them on her knee and they would sing songs? Because our kids sat in a truck every Saturday their whole life growing up anywhere from 4 to 12 hours. Do you listen to Patch the Pirate songs? Do you watch DVDs? You do all kinds of stuff. And these people would be traveling together in large caravans, making really long journeys, and what did they do? They sang songs. And specifically, what did they sing? They sang the songs God required for them to sing, and that's the Song of Degrees. Why, did, why do they call them song of degrees or ascents? Because everybody that goes to the city of Jerusalem have to go up. And so they were singing going up to the city of Jerusalem. So what's the purpose of singing? Well, obviously it would help them as they would have to mentally endure the long trip. But these psalms were primarily instructional. They were to teach people lessons. And if you understand this, when you walk a long, if you walk a lot, like a long way, like, you know, 10 or 15 miles a day, your mind has a tendency to focus in on what you're thinking about. These Psalms were written as these pilgrims were traveling and it was to teach them lessons as they were encountering the difficult road of life's journey. It's about lessons that you learn on life's journey. But not only were they to be instructional, but they were to be inspirational. They were intended to strengthen the people of God with a greater understanding of God so that they would learn to trust God. So the Psalms were written to teach us life lessons or lessons on life's long journey. And every one of these 15 Psalms has a lesson that we need to learn. So tonight, let's look at Psalm 125 and let's try to learn the lesson that God wanted the Jewish people to learn because he wants us to learn the same lesson on life's long journey. So two things tonight. Number one, the first thing is, what's, what's the setting of the psalm? Okay, let's, let's set up the psalm. What, what was going on in this psalm? So when they were thinking about it, as they were walking, these were the thoughts that were coming to their mind. And I believe the setting of the psalm is found in verse 3, where it appears that the believers were experiencing something that was terrible. And that is they were experiencing enemy occupation in the land. Look at what it says in verse 3. For the rod, rod is, a, is the scepter or the authority, the rulership. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Now, 
Those of you that are Bible students know very clearly that the Jewish people, the children of Israel, lived in the land of Israel and they ruled the land, especially when they had kings in the land from the time of King David that started about 1000 B.C., up until 586 B.C., David's lineage, David's sons and grandsons and so forth, Solomon and Rehoboam and so forth, they ruled in the land. So uh, right, over, right over 400 years, they ruled in that land until something happened. Does anybody know what happened? They were invaded by who? A group of people called the Babylonians under a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And from 586 B.C. until 70 A.D. <coughs> 70 A.D. is 40 years after the death of Christ. The land of Israel were being, was being ruled by enemies. So there were the Babylonians. Then the Persians. Then the Greeks and those that were uh, given the right to rule by Alexander the Great. And then ultimately the Romans. So that when Jesus was born, he was born in the time when Rome ruled and he was executed by the Roman government. And that happened all the way to 70 AD when, when Israel essentially as a nation was destroyed and it did not regain its status back as a nation until when? 1947. So the idea here <coughs> is that the, the land has been conquered and it is being ruled by their enemies. And from the Jewish perspective, whenever the enemy occupied the land, it was always considered a spiritual disaster. Why is it that they lost the land? Why is it that the Babylonians conquered the land? When we go back and study the Bible, we know clearly it was because of God's judgment on the people for their disobedience. The land that they had was allotted to them by God. But because of their disobedience to God, they lost the right to the land. Now here's the problem. If the kingdom of evil conquers the land and the Jews come under the scepter, the rule of those pagans, those idolaters, and they begin to dominate the nation, then what is the potential that could happen to the people of God? If paganism rules, what's the ultimate threat to the people? The ultimate threat is that the people will stop worshiping their God and they will turn to the pagan idolatry and they will begin to worship idols. When the wicked rule the people, the potential is that the people will begin to adopt the ways of the pagans and it will lead to inevitably greater ruin and greater judgment from God. So look now at verse 3 and note, look at what he's saying. He says, for the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Their concern about the negative influence of paganism within their own country. That was the overriding fear of, the, of godly people. So what's the setting of this psalm? It's living in a land with the negative influence of paganism, and the people are fearful about that influence that is going on in the country. 
So let me just stop here and ask you a question. You who are parents or grandparents, do you ever get concerned about the negative influence of the culture on our young people? How many of you ever get concerned about your own children? Sure. In my family, I am the preacher in public. My wife is the preacher in private. You ought to hear her sermons to her children. And by the way, they're repeatable sermons. Fact is, my kids can finish the sentence when my wife starts them. And almost inevitably, my wife, when she speaks to our children, always is, has, a, has the element of fear of the negative influence of the culture in which young people are living in and its influence on their spirituality and their morality. That's the fear of the people of God in that time. That's the setting of the psalm. And that's why this has been called a psalm of lament. There are 150 psalms. 49 of them are called psalms of lament. What, is, what does a lament mean? You've heard of the book of lamentation. It's an expression of sorrow or disappointment or grief or regret or complaint so that when you come to God and you pray we can come to God and praise him we can come to God and thank him but we often come to God and we are burdened and we are concerned and there are problems and we're saying God this is really really bad we need your help we need you to intervene that's what this is it is a psalm of lament of what the people of God are experiencing but lest we think that that's the only atmosphere when you read the psalm it's also a psalm or a prayer of confidence because the writer is saying things don't look good but it's easy to become negative and pessimistic and what we see in this psalm is actually a primarily a tone that is very very positive and that is in the midst of things that look bad as we go through life's long journey and we're concerned about the negative influence of the pagan culture, we can be negative and pessimistic, but that's not what this psalm is all about. This psalm is about the fact that God is our unshakable foundation. That we have in the Lord that which will give us security and stability as believers as we go through life's long journey. So, what then is the lesson? The lesson that we find in this psalm is this, that when the weakest saint exercises the simplest faith in God, he becomes anchored to an immovable mountain of stability. God is our unshakable foundation. That's what the psalm is all about. And that's what brings us here to verse 1, where we see beginning here four elements of the quality of God as our unshakable foundation. Notice number 1, he says, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. What is he saying for the saint of God as they travel through life's long journey and they go through times where there is a negative influence in atmosphere? He is saying that God is our stability. 
The Lord is like Mount Zion, which cannot be removed. What is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem was built. It is an immovable mountain. It is a solid rock. What is he saying? For the people of God, God is beneath us. God is under us to support us. He is our firm foundation. It's been my privilege to lead many tours to Israel. And uh, every time I go, I go to a a shop in the old city of Jerusalem. The old, the old city and the new city are like two different worlds. Uh, Jerusalem's a big city. It's, it's a city of you know, about a million people or more. And then the old city is what you think of when you read the Bible. That's the city with the walls around it. And inside the old city, there are four quarters. There's the Muslim, Jewish, Armenian, and Christian quarter. And when you go in the Jewish quarter, they have a lot of shops. And there's a shop there that's owned by two Orthodox brothers, Jewish brothers. And their names are Moshe and Dove, or, or Moses and David, however you want to say it. And I know Moshe and Dove very well. All four of my children studied in Jerusalem on a study abroad for a semester of school. And I have a daughter My oldest daughter, Rebecca, lives in Jerusalem and she leads tours throughout Israel. She's a teacher there at a school. So these brothers have become very, very good friends. And so they sell Jewish art and jewelry and so forth. And they're they're wonderful people. And they have the coolest t-shirt that they sell that sits out front of their shop that a walker by can see it every single day. And on the back of the t-shirt, it says these words. Listen very carefully. It says, civilizations and empires that have tried to destroy the Jewish people. And then it has two columns. One column says nations. The second column says status. Under the nations, it has a list like ancient Egypt, Philistines, Assyrians, Persians, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, Nazis, Iraq. On the other side, it has status, and and then there's a box, and, and then the box has an X in it, and then next to it, it says the word gone. So you see ancient Egypt, check mark, gone. Babylonians, check mark, gone. Uh, Persians, check mark, gone. Romans, check mark, gone. Nazis, check mark, gone. Iraq, check mark, no, Iraq, question mark. And then underneath it, it says the Jewish people, the smallest of nations, but with a friend in high places. So be nice. I love it. Because if you've ever been to Israel, it is very, very clear to you that they live with a permanent threat to them. And you would think going to Israel is not very safe. I have people all the time say, aren't you concerned about going there? It's not very safe. Have you ever been to Chicago? Or New York City? Far more threats than you find in Jerusalem. 
And when you get there, you find that it feels extremely safe. It's a wonderful place to be. And every time I go there, I cannot help but think of this psalm when it says that they that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. God is our stability. When we look at the church of Jesus Christ, Scott, the Lord said to Peter, upon this rock, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it's oftentimes in church work we can get down in the mouth because our church is not doing so well. Well, let me tell you something. The church is doing quite well. And God's going to build His church. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And so whenever you are living in a situation where there's fear and there's threats, remember God is our stability. But not only is he our stability, but he says in verse 2 that God is our security. Notice what he says, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. Jerusalem was secure. Why? Not only because the Lord was under them, but the Lord was all about them. He was surrounding them. God is all around us. The city of Jerusalem, actually, the way, way it looks is really quite interesting. Because the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem is built is at about 2,500 feet above sea level. The Mount of Olives, which is right across the Kidron Valley, it's kind of like here's Jerusalem and here's the Mount of Olives, is at about 2,800 feet above sea level. So when you stand on the Mount of Olives, you're always looking down. Fact is, if you get in all the mountains around the city of Jerusalem, you always look down on the city of Jerusalem. So I was there a few years ago, my daughter and I, Rebecca, and we went over to the what is known today, if you were to go, is the city of David, the ancient city of David that's part of the city of Jerusalem. And we're standing there, and she looks at me, and she says, Dad, look around. She said, do you notice that all the other mountains surrounding the city of Jerusalem are actually higher? It's kind of like a coffee cup, you know, like the old cups that came out, the saucer, and at the, you know, the, you got the bottom, and then the, the, that rises up like that, and... Jerusalem is like at the bottom of the cup and all the mountains are around it. And she looked at me, she said, why in the world would God put his people at such a low place? And I looked at her and she went, come on, dad. I mean, didn't you teach us this? That God's People are often put in places of vulnerability where no matter what they do, they have to trust God. No matter what, what happens, we, we don't get to a place where we don't have to trust God and find God to be our security. If we put our security in anything other than the Lord, God in his own unique way can pull that out from us. So that we constantly realize that we have to look back to the Lord. I love the story of Elisha in the city of Dothan with his servant. 
And the king of Syria named Ben-Hadad and his army marched to the city and surrounded the city in the middle of the night. At daybreak, Elisha's servant goes out to draw water from the well and there he comes out and what does he see surrounding the city? He sees the enemy soldiers and he's terrified. He runs back in and he says to Elisha, oh my Lord, what are we going to do? And I love the response of the prophet when he replied, fear not for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And then suddenly the eyes of the servant of the, were, were open and he looked up and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire as the angels encamped around those that fear him. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Security for the people of God is clear. The rule of the wicked shall not prevail. God is for us because he is under us and he surrounds us. But then notice what he says in verse 4. That God is not only our security and stability, but God is our sufficiency. He says, do good, O Lord, unto those that be good and to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. If I could just boil this verse down into a simple statement, I would say that in a confusing age, our greatest security is found in the simplicity of our obedience. Good here, do good, O Lord, unto those that be good. Good always is referring to keeping the Torah. What's the Torah? The first five books of the Bible. It's obedience. To do good, O Lord, means Lord bless us or give us good things. And what they're simply saying is God... We have come to the place where we are trusting you. And by trusting you, it means we are obeying you. And God, we're looking to you. And except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. God, if you don't bless us, we have no blessing. And for the children of God, our obedience to him, our trust in him is sufficient. Trust and obey for there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. You know, when things get shaky, you, 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 always, you always look for, what do I do here? How do I fix this? How do I solve this? How do I resolve this? And it doesn't mean that we put our brains in park and we don't do anything. I don't mean that at all. But sometimes you just get to the point where you say, Lord, I don't know what else to do. God, you've got to do the work. We're trusting you. And that's what you learn on life's journey. Trust God. Because God is our sufficiency. And then let me finish with the last phrase here in verse 5 when he says, But peace shall be upon Israel, and ultimately God is our serenity. The psalm closes with a priestly blessing, But peace shall be upon Israel. Peace is not the end of conflict. It's the Hebrew word shalom. When you go to Israel, you always greet another Jewish person by saying, Jewish person by saying shalom. It means, how you doing? Fine. 
But shalom for Jew means wellness, wholeness, healthiness, happiness. Shalom is kind of the one word that sums up what everybody wants in life. What do you want in life? You want shalom. You want blessing. You want peace. You want health. You want prosperity. And so what he is saying is we are to trust God in uncertain times. And God alone is our serenity. He's our peace. He's our shalom. When, what difficulties are you facing? What disturbing circumstances are threatening you? What demanding challenges? What threatening problems? What imminent crisis do you find yourself in where you need God's intervention? What, what you really want is you want His wholeness, His wellness, His shalom. Then be assured that God is infinitely greater than whatever threatens you. That's the lessons we learn on life's long journey. At the end of the road, God is the one that gives us peace. A few years ago, I read a book that kind of ca captured my attention. It was by a national bestseller writer named Thomas Cahill. The name of his book was How the Irish Saved Civilization. I thought that was an interesting title because I didn't know the Irish saved anything. In the book, he wrote about a man named Patrick. He was a young Roman who brought Christianity to Ireland. We call him St. Patrick. Patrick had been captured in England by Irish pirates when he was 16 years old, and he was put to work as a slave for an Irish chieftain. After six years, he escaped, returned back to his family, and then he was called by the Lord to go back to Ireland as a missionary. And when he went back, he faced insurmountable odds. Behind him lay the collapsing wreck of the Roman civilization. It was at that time frame. Before him, he faced the fierce wild natives of Ireland. And he had no outward security. But he continued in his calling, dying at, the last, at, dying at last at the age of 76 years old. In his 30 years of ministry, Patrick changed Ireland so thoroughly that as Thomas Cahill reports in his study, as the Roman lands went from peace to chaos, the land of Ireland was rushing even more rapidly from chaos to peace. Instead of viewing the collapse of his culture as a tragedy, he seized it as an opportunity to propagate the gospel of Christ. And where did he find strength in these times? his stability, his security, where did it come from? He gives an answer in a surviving prayer that is known as St. Patrick's Breastplate. And I finish tonight with this prayer. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me. God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from snares of devils, from temptations of vices, and from everyone who shall wish me ill.
Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come to be abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. I arise today through the mighty strength of Jesus Christ. That, my friend, is true security. So as we travel through life's long journey, what do we learn? We learn that God is our unshakable foundation and he will lead us and he will take care of us and he will safely bring us home. And that ultimate home is to be in his presence with him forever. Father, we thank you tonight for your truth. We thank you for the reality that you are our unshakable foundation. Lord, when our life is being shaken up, whatever it may be, thank you, Lord, that you are our stability, our security, you are our sufficiency, and you are our ultimate serenity and peace. We thank you for these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.